Hello and welcome to the Dr. Vincent Buscemi podcast, the survival guide for dentists. I have a really interesting guest today, and again, I'm recording these intros before the interview. Elijah Desmond. He was a dentist for six years before he transitioned to a DJ. That's almost like you don't believe it. it's like a joke, but he is a professional DJ supporting his family living his dreams, and can make a living off a DJ after leaving dentistry. That's almost unheard of. So I think you're going to be really excited for this podcast. I'm going to ask Elijah how much courage it took to leave dentistry and pursue a new career. Guys, I think you'll love this episode, and I'll talk to you soon. Do you feel stuck on the financial hamster wheel? You keep paying on your debts like mortgages, car notes, student and business loans, but they never seem to disappear. My name is Dr. Howard Polanski former dentist, now founder of Cashflow Coach USA. I guide families and business owners through a simple system to dramatically reduce your payment towards debt. You keep your same lifestyle and keep more money each month. A recent client will pay off their house in just seven months instead of the anticipated 20 years. Free 10-minute discovery call will determine if I can help you too. Go to CashflowCoachUSA.com Scan the QR code or call 512-608-1020 to find financial freedom faster. Are you tired of using ineffective cosmetics and personal care products filled with harmful chemicals? Meet Ancestral Cosmetics and our range of highly effective products rooted in ancestral wisdom and made with edible ingredients such as beef tallow, olive oil, and raw local honey. Check out our best-selling tallow and honey balm for soft and smooth skin or our revolutionary tooth powder made from eggshells for effective teeth cleaning and whitening without any toxic ingredients. Free US shipping for orders over $50 and you can shop now at ancestralcosmetics.com. Thank you so much for coming on my podcast. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. So we're dying to know. The, the question all my friends asked when I said you were coming on the podcast is, how does this guy go from dentist to DJ, what was going in your mind your first couple of years of dentistry when you said, I got to leave? First off, let me make a quick correction. My whole clinical career, which is a whole few years, all of these kids jumped in my chair. And because I was a man, they called me a dentist. Yeah. And I'm actually a pediatric dental hygienist, uh, <laughs> but I no longer practice in dentistry, but I work with thousands of dentists. Um, so repeat that question. You distracted me when you called me a dentist. <laughs> oh, so why would you leave pediatric hygiene and move into being a DJ? What was going through your mind that you were like, I got to leave this career? Well, first off, I definitely did not um, go straight from practicing clinically to being in uh, a DJ or an MC. It wasn't just like that. <laughs> So it was a long journey to get to that. I was I was speaking in most of the major stages across dentistry as a motivational speaker in this space. My background is uh, speaking for kids. Um, I speak for kids internationally, and I got into dentistry um, after. So I was speaking in dentistry and speaking for kids at the same time. However, I you know I've created these big events. And one of them being um, Dentistry's Got Talent, where I'm bringing up speakers, meaning, you know, the people that have this message to share. I'm sharing my message with 
uh, I'm letting them share my, the message from the stage. Essentially, I'm giving them a stage. I'm not holding a huge, um, I'm not, I'm not that door that they can't get through. They're knocking at that somebody won't come to, through, right? There's basically all this talent, the new talent that nobody gets to hear because they're new. So I give the new people an opportunity. And then also some of the established speakers that want to get a lot of exposure opportunity as well. But the big picture is, is I actually stopped speaking because I was, I felt really bad taking these big speaking opportunities on general sessions, keynoting, et cetera, on the main stage. Cause I thought my peers should have it. So I still wanted to be involved with dentistry. I still love the stage and the energy. So I thought it made sense to become an MC. And so um, I started being the hype man who makes, goes to all these dental conferences and keeps the audience on their feet, you know, having fun and, you know, making sure all the speakers have walk on music and a ton of energy. One thing led to the next and I decided that I would go to Scratch Academy. And the reason why I went to Scratch Academy was not actually to DJ and dentistry. It was actually to DJ um, and do motivational concerts for high school kids. I'll never forget it was um, Smile Source, Smile Source meeting in Dallas. And um, I just got done speaking for a high school in that city. And then right after that, being the opening keynote for Smile Source. And the feeling that I got when I got off stage after speaking to the kids was an unexplainable feeling. Um, I'm not a doctor, but I have the ability to save somebody's life. So I'm saving these kids' lives from the stage. And how do I know? They'll come up afterwards and say, Elijah, I was going to go home and commit suicide tonight. But I'm not because of the word you said from the stage. And so that's how I can save a kid's life. Then I go to the dental conference. And do I have a great time? Yes. Do I make everybody else have a good time? 90% yes. <laughs> Are they, you know, enjoying themselves? Do I, you know, absolutely. But the impact was greater for the kids. I wanted to know, you know, how do I make a bigger impact to the kids? Well, you put a whole bunch of kids in a huge football stadium. So that football stadium is uh, essentially the home of what I call a motivational concert. So essentially what happens is that we put 10 to 15 high schools in a football stadium. And there's a st stage in the middle of the football field. The music drops. I run onto the stage. When I run onto the stage, um, I'm playing music for 15 minutes, pumping the kids up. I bring the first motivational speaker onto the stage, it's not me. They give a 30-minute talk. Second motivational speaker onto the stage, not me. They give a 30-minute talk. I play music in between and afterwards, and then I give my message to the kids. And my message is for 30 minutes. Afterwards, we give out a scholarship. Um, one of uh, the things we give out is a new car. We give out a new car to a 16-year-old kid who uh, financially would not have been able to afford a car, but they got accepted into college early, like me. And then we give out a scholarship for uh, a senior who uh, is going to dental school or to hygiene school, uh, and one and or one that is uh, wanting to be an entrepreneur and going to college to be an entrepreneur. So we give out all these scholarships uh, to the kids and a new, um, a new car, and that's what a motivational concert is. That is the original reason, long story, but the original reason why I got to be a DJ and then this whole, the dental thing just literally uh, took its own life of its own. <laughs>
Wow. What is the motivation to focus your motivational speaking on kids? Well, um, you know, at 15 years old, I got, I tested into, um, college and at that moment, um, when I tested into college, there was some things that happened just before, um, in which I went to a leadership camp called the Hugh O'Brien leadership camp. And I heard a motivational speaker for the first time. And I was in the back of the room. I'll never forget where I was hearing this speaker. I wish I would know who that, that was, that speaker. And I heard the message that the speaker had, and I thought, man, I could be up there at the front of the room. I'd love to be a motivational speaker. And so since I tested into college early, it gave me a story that I could start to tell. I also got my college career or my, my football career and wrestling career, my athletic career ripped from me at a young age. And so I had a story around that. I also had a story around being the, uh, a kid who was biracial, but looked at as black in a all white high school, but went to my dad's um, every other weekend. And then my stepmoms that lived in the projects and then all of a sudden, I was this uh, black kid who talked white. And so I had to deal with identity issues as a, as a kid, uh, essentially, until I realized that I need to be my authentic self. And I'm not white. I'm not black. I'm me. I'm Elijah. I'm both. Call me what you want, but I, you get what you see kind of thing. And um, anyways, so I got uh, a chance to have to tell my story to kids at a young age, the story that I had then. Well, as the years grew on, my story continued and my story got better. And so I continued to speak and continued to tell my story. And that's essentially how I got into speaking to kids. What is the message you're telling certain kids for someone to walk up to you and say, Elijah, Mr. Elijah? I was going to kill myself, but because of you, I have a chance at a good life. <laughs> well, let's just go ahead and, and put it like that. If there was a, um, <laughs> if this was a high school I was talking to, the message would be a lot different than uh, it is right now. But I will tell you, there are about 10 different messages that I go and I give to schools. The, the message that I get the most um, in regards to a kid wanting to go and take their life is the rock bottom experiences that I've had. And I explain, um, I personally have never been suicidal, but I can understand somebody who suffers from depression or anxiety or is in a depressive state. So I don't suffer from depression or anxiety. However, have I been stressed and depressed and suffered from anxiety at some point in my life? Absolutely three times. <laughs> and I tell the story about what happened. And I talk about being in that dark place. And I talk about the journey out and climbing out of the dark place and what the light is in the end of the, uh, at the end of the tunnel. And sometimes people just need to hear that, that are at rock bottom, that there are other people out there that have been on the darkest of the darkest places and the worst of the worst, and that it's going to be okay. It's going to be better. And when I say things that are vulnerable, such as I have never read a book and I tested into college early. I have never read a book. I got a full ride scholarship to college 
I've never read a book, but I've started over 20 businesses. Those things that you say, you never know who you're going to affect, right? You never know who you're going to impact. So those kids may be sitting out in the audience and maybe there's three kids, four kids, maybe 10 that also have a learning disability like I have, like I had as a kid that affected me as a kid. Now I know as an adult, I know ways that I can use that to my benefit, right? But as a kid, you don't necessarily know and you're going through something and you're at a rock bottom. But if I can catch you with my story and tell you how alike we are because you have some sort of learning or reading issue or disability or, you know, um, you know, thing about you, if I can catch you there and then you also, now I've got your attention, you also have a situation you're going through in which you're at rock bottom and you're at rock bottom. Now you've narrowed it down to five more people that are rock bottom. And then all of a sudden you talk about how you got out of rock bottom and the story of how low it was at rock bottom. A couple of those kids are going to start crying on the spot and wiping their tears. Not just a couple, usually a lot of the audience or a lot, but some of those people who felt like they were me, they were that kid. Um, and then they were felt deeper, but that was, that was them again. Like, Oh my gosh, they're going through um, something in their in their life right now. And then when I tell them the story up, like it's going to be okay and it's only temporary and it's going to make you so much stronger. And then I tell them the ways that, um, the things that I do to get out of that state of mind and I've been through it first. It was once and it was twice and then three times. Um, it makes it relatable. So those kids often reveal themselves and I'll get the longest hug ever after I get off the stage, after I see it in line and shake all these hands and take all these pictures and when I get, it's a certain hug and you know it, it's like an electric feeling. You know that you really made a crazy impact. You don't know exactly how, but oftentimes the kids will tell you right then in your ear or they'll wait afterwards and tell you, or they'll send you a message on Instagram, on Facebook, or an email. It could be as late as two years after the fact to say they were going to commit, their, commit suicide or take their life, but they're not because of the message that I said. So that is um, one of my messages. And a lot of kids are out there are struggling with addiction. I started my addiction at 15 years old and it was having the ability to save kids lives. And now I'm addicted to it. That's what I'm addicted to. That's my addiction is that feeling and be knowing I have the ability to go out and save somebody's life just from getting on stage and grabbing the mic. So. Wow. What were you addicted to at age 15? I wasn't addicted to anything. Oh, you were not. Okay. I was addicted as soon as I began to realize that I could save a kid's lives. That's oh. addiction. Okay. What was one of these rock bottoms that you've experienced at such a young age? Yeah. So, um, you know, there was, I, I can start with the, the, the first one, which is, you know, me being told that I could, well, first off, you know, I'm the all, I mean, I am a black kid at an all white school. So I'm the, I'm standing out as it is. However, when I, when I finally, sunk into my identity, right? So what's, who's my identity or what's my identity? My identity is essentially I am Elijah. I am biracial. I wear different clothes. Uh, I may want to uh, wear uh, fubu jeans and an Abercrombie shirt, pop my collar and have a part in my hair or have cornrows. <laughs> like it's mixed up, right? 
And so before I would only do one or the other, right? All FUBU, all Tommy Hilfiger, all Jordans, like it's one race, it's one ethnic, you know, branches, or there's another one, Abercrombie, then Fitch or American Eagle. I lived both. Like I had different two sets of outfits. And then um, I realized that once I stopped faking it or trying to figure out who I was, I don't even know if it was faking it. I think it was just figuring out your identity, figure, finding out who you were. That's when I got a massive influx of acceptance is when I was as me. I showed up as me. I didn't fake it. My voice didn't change. My, my ad lives, my, you know, the things that I way I talk that didn't change. I showed up as myself. And when I started showing up as myself, I just got more of massive acceptance. But all of a sudden, once that happened, I, um, you know, I, I was on the way to this huge career as an athlete. And in my school, I was known as the athlete, right? I was very good in sports. Well, now all of a sudden, that got taken away from me. And it was a terrible moment. So that was a very low, but it wasn't a rock bottom. It wasn't a rock bottom until I went to the Ohio State University and was told that I could no longer play. Uh, I'm sorry. I was told in high school I could no longer play contact sports. I went to the Ohio State University and I basically was sat down by the doctor and was told that I was overdiagnosed and I could have been playing sports the entire time. And I got my whole career, athletic career, as a freshman taken away from me. Um, I went into state of depression and rock bottom at that point. What was the overdiagnosis that... My top, what? my top vertebrae being fused to my skull. So it was. Uh, they found out that my top vertebrae was fused to my skull and that if I got hit the wrong way, I would die or get paralyzed. My parents got multiple second opinions, paid out of pocket for the second opinions, and all the second opinions said, no, you got to get out of contact sports. And so then I went to the best doctor in, in that, at Ohio State University, and they told me, actually, the doctor overdiagnosed you. Your neck is actually is stronger than an average person. Um, you, you can go play. And I got approved to play and stayed in that basement for three days and didn't, I didn't play. Cause you felt all your dreams were crushed by one wrong diagnosis. Yeah. But in the long run, it made you who you are today. That's right. I, I want to go back to one thing, which is super impressive for being 15. How did you find the courage at 15 to go to school and just be yourself? Cause people in their thirties and forties aren't themselves. Um, I don't know how I did it, but I know that nobody was saying, just be yourself. <laughs> I started switching, switching it up. I would wear different clothes. I wear, like I said, FUBU pants and I would put an Abercrombie shirt on and pop my collar. And if you don't like it, you don't got to look. I'm not sagging my pants. I'm not disrespecting you from showing you my crack, right? Walking <laughs> around looking crazy, but I would just be me. And you know, um, I didn't even care anymore. When I, when I started, when I like started saying, I don't care to the world in regards to if you don't like me, that's okay. That all of a sudden everything changed. So I didn't have anybody saying like, be yourself, be yourself. I don't even know if anybody knew what I was going through inside or a kid is going through this inside. When you're that young, it's hard to express that. Isn't it interesting that 
you're saying if you don't like me for who I am, take it or leave it. Do you still have that attitude now? Because to get in front of groups of thousands of people, you got to think like that as well. 100%. 1,000%. Like, here's the thing. Here's what I believe in. Kindness, respect, fun, authenticity. So if I treat you great, if I am kind to you, if I respect the crap out of you, if I love to have fun while being kind, while treating you with respect, right? And I'm my authentic self. If you still don't like me, there's the door because I'm not about to fake it for you. You know, a lot of people fake it and they have to remember what they did or what they said or, you know, who they were trying to be. That's confusing because you're like trying to be somebody you're not. And then you got to remember what you said, what you did, how you acted. What do you do when you're in a room with four people and one person, they know you, they know the real you. Maybe that's your family. Maybe. Then the other person, that person is a very reserved person. And so you always come at them with a really quiet message. Because you're trying to cater to them. And then what if there's another person that's like really like crazy loud and obnoxious and you go in there and you're just like super loud and obnoxious right with them, right? And then what if there's this person that's like super religious and all you do is pretend to be like extremely godlike, right? And, and then like you get in a room with all four of them who are you supposed to act like? But if you're a combination of this person, that person, this person, or whoever you may be, or matter of fact, maybe you're none of them. And if you got to remember only one person, and it doesn't take nothing to remember because that's who you are all the time, and you get in a room with this person by themselves, you're acting just the same because you're you. And the same of them with this person, this person, this person, and if they're all together, they all accepted me for me. I don't got to fake it. And if you don't like it, then there's the door, <laughs> right? But I'm not, but you got to remember, I'm not a jerk, right? And, and I'm not mean about it. But at the same time, if I know I'm a kind person, I'll help everyone. And somebody still is like, well, I don't like him. Okay. That I'll serve the 95% of other people. I don't, I don't need the, the, the negative five. See ya. Kick, kick rocks. I think about so many dentists and hygienists that, I mean, I don't always follow that. How many times do you cater to your patients? Like if your patient, let's say is more liberal, you kind of talk more liberal or if they're more Republican, you talk more Republican and how many dentists and hygienists lose their identity even in practice as you develop this way of thinking, do you ever slip and do you ever find yourself catering to someone you're talking to? No, no, I won't fake it. Here's what I would say. I will, I will remain silent because I have a high emotional intelligence. If there is, first off, I don't talk politics with anybody. Smart. <laughs> number one. Num number two, if I hear something that I know is very controversial, the, the overarching theme that I will always have is kindness. I'm going to be kind to everyone. I'm going to do my best. I'm going to treat everyone with respect. And that covers me. So 
any controversial conversation, I just look, I just step out the room. It's not for me. And I don't get caught up in that stuff. So I don't have to worry about it. I'll focus on another conversation that's more my speed. It sounds like these principles you're living by are like such great examples for kids because kids lack structure. Do you explain this to the kids that you're speaking to as well? When you say this specifically, what is it? So always be kind. Yes. That, that like what you said was perfect. Like you don't speak politics, but if they disagree with you, your first mode is kindness. That is missing in almost all dialogue today. Right. They want to snap. You don't agree with somebody, they snap back at you. Right. I just won't have the conversation, but I'll handle it with kindness. Like there's this, there's so many things that we could talk about in the whole world. Why am I going to talk about something that could potentially end in an uproar of the other party? Because you ain't going to uproar me because I just won't talk about it. There's no reason to. There's so many other things to talk about. There's a lot of people that will entertain that. That person's not me. Where did you learn this kindness? I was raised in that. I mean, I was, I was raised by two kind parents and, and you know, four kind families. And that's just, that's just who I am. And I've, I've, it's worked for me. I don't really have a mean body. I don't have a mean bone in my body, right? Kindness is, is everything. And so if, you, if you're going to hate a kind person or not like a kind person, that's your problem, not mine. You're going to be mad by yourself because I'm not going to be mad with you. <laughs> it seems like there's a correlation between self-esteem and kindness. Because you seem very secure with who you are. I can just tell by this 25 minutes. The more secure you are, the more you're able to be kind to other people. Um, I guess I've watched some really secure people that are jerks. Um, I don't know if I would put a blanket statement on secure people are kind. I mean, I've watched some really arrogant people that are super secure and they're not really kind. So is there situations to where security and kindness go hand in hand? Sure. Um, however, I don't know if you can permanently glue the, the two together. <laughs> yeah, no, you're probably right. So I want to go back to when you were a hygienist. What was going through your mind, like the spark of thinking you need to do something else with as a career? Because I'm my own boss. There ain't nobody telling me what to do. I, I will respect the law. I'll do the right thing. I'll treat others with respect. But I just, I, I'm an entrepreneur, and that's all I know. And so I can't be clocking in on somebody's clock. Can't do it. I, I couldn't. Um, I can't be trapped inside of four walls. It, I'm too claustrophobic for that. Like if, if I'm like I'm sitting beside a window right now, <laughs> <laughs> right? I get on a plane tomorrow. I'll be in multiple different countries in the next couple months. Like I'm not meant for an office, but like I, I'm just not built for inside of a dental practice like that. I I've tried and I worked in one for three years, multiple ones. I owned a staffing agency a long time ago. Um, but working inside of dental practice is not for me. I love dentistry. And you need people that are outside of the industry that are still in the industry, right? When I say outside, I mean outside of clinical, 
to be in the industry. Like me, I love my industry. I love dentistry. I love dentists. I love team members. I love them in the practice. I'm just to support them outside the practice, right? So I have things like events. I own Smiles at Sea. That is for dentists and their teams to come and do team building, to have fun, to be kind, to dance, to laugh, right? I have the dental festival. What is that for? To go on a vacation with your team, to dance, to laugh, to get education. I just personally am not one to be in the dental practice, but here's what did it for me. I was working in a practice in Honolulu, Hawaii, and I'll never forget being told that I had to put my phone away until lunch break. <laughs> like you, you, you can't, somebody that's an entrepreneur being told to put your phone away. <clears throat> Something about that I just don't like. I'm grown and you can't tell me, to, you know? And so I just, I've really never liked rules, to be honest. Be, I've never liked rules, but I do understand those things of respect, kindness, right? So the unfortunate thing is there are probably, not probably, there are a lot of people out there that are like me that don't like rules, but they're like not good people. <laughs> I'm a good person and I know I'm a good person. Some people are not, but those people are in jail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> A lot of them, right? Or six feet under or, or, or. I happen to not like rules, but I create them. I create my own playbook for life. I create my own playbook for my businesses. I create my own playbook for my family. I create my own playbook for events. Every single thing that I do, I decide when I want. I'm the boss of me, essentially. And that's essentially how I feel as an entrepreneur. And I can't change it can't but that's the reason why i went out and built all the things that i can to support the 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 feelings that i have about um you know having no barriers and and being able to do what i want to do um and that's why i created what i created um on a high level with freedom being probably your top value and maybe empathy and creativity right below it what drew you into hygiene well my aunt is a hygienist my mom worked as an office manager for 25 years. Uncle is a dentist. And I was not about to work on a farm and do hard, hard work. I was raised in a big farm and I learned what hard work was all about and sweating in the hot and getting dirty. And I'll tell you what, only time I want to sweat is when I'm running or going to the gym. <laughs> I'll hire somebody to do the roofing. I'll hire somebody to get the landscaping. I'll hire out for everything, but I don't like sweating. It's, it's just not, it's not my speed. And so I knew that if I went into dentistry, that I can be in air conditioning and I get hot easy, <laughs> but I could be in air conditioning and um, I wouldn't have to work with my muscles hard. You have to work hard still as a dentist, as a dental professional to work hard, but it's a different kind of hard. You have to deal with patients and no shows and people complaining and, you know, the team, sometimes the culture's not always right. Right. Um, but for me, you know, I just, you know, I couldn't live, I couldn't work in the outside, in the outside hot, but I also knew coming out of hygiene school, that I was not going to stay practicing dentistry. I already knew that, like, 
before I graduated that this was not long-term. This was like a stepping stone. I didn't want to go to school for four more years to be a dentist, even though that was the most asked question ever for my first year or two. I knew I didn't want to go to dental school. I thought to myself, like, um, I can't put myself through this much more school. I did not like school. I love the fun part. I graduated from the Ohio State University. Football games, the dorm, the parties, the holy smokes. Like, that was, that's what I'm talking about. Like, that's fun. That made it, that made it fun. But the school part, uh-uh. I mean, I graduated with a 3.1 GPA, right? Wasn't the top of my class. I could have graduated with a 4.0. I chose not to. Right. That was not because of learning disability. That was because I wanted to have a, a really, you know, memorable college experience. And it wasn't about, I already got into the college I wanted to. I got a full ride academic scholarship. Right. I got into the college I wanted to. I knew what I needed to do to get pretty good grades. Right. And um, I knew I was going to do big things whenever I graduated. I just didn't know exactly what I was going to do yet. But there's something different about you because how many professionals are in their job, say hygiene or dentistry, and they have big dreams and they never move forward on them? That's the majority of people. Why were you able to do it? Why did you move forward on your dreams? I honestly feel like I had un- I have un- I have now, but I-, I had an unfair advantage. I mean, let's just be honest. Most people coming out of dental school are having kids or about to be married. Most women coming out of hygiene school are about to get married (laughs) or having kids shortly. That's, that's what, that's the, that is what I seen with my own eyes. I had no kids. I was not married and I lived the best life ever in Hawaii and in Las Vegas until I met my wife. And so when I say I had unfair advantage, that's what I mean. I didn't have any responsibilities, but taking care of me, right? Credit, uh, credit always stayed great, right? I always took care of all the bills, all my, myself, but it was just me, myself, and I. So I had the ability to, to, to trial and error a ton of stuff. And so eventually I got numb of failure. You know, a lot of people are afraid of failure. I'm not. Bring it on. Bring it on. If there's a there's a good idea or something that would, you know, most people would say, oh, no, I'm not doing that. It's too scary. If I think it's a good idea, I'm doing it. I don't care if it's a risk. If it makes sense, I was doing it. Now, that's how I started over 20 businesses, but that's also how I failed in five or six miserably and lost tens and thousands of dollars, right? Hundreds of thousands, not just tens of thousands. And at the end of the day, I have a, I have a lot of experience with going through pivots and ups and downs to where it just doesn't phase me, where it would phase your average person. And so I also have to give myself that same, you know, talk when I'm looking at other people and they're asking for help and I'm watching them just stay still, not do anything that like, you know, they got a family at home. It's hard, but I'm also watching them only get older as they want to accomplish these dreams and do these things. And I'm sitting here banging my head against the wall like, well, what are you doing about that? Because I'm doing something right now. 
I'm not waiting. I'm doing it right this moment. And that all stems from I got an early advantage. You said you're numb to failure and you've hit a lot of trial and error. How are you when you fail? And because losing 10,000 is a lot, losing 100,000 is even more. What are you telling yourself to keep moving forward towards your goals? What do you got to do? What's the solution? If I fail, okay, well, what's the solution? How can I rectify this? How can I make it better? What's, what is the solution? I mean, I, I'm, I am not afraid to fail. I'm just not. People are afraid I'm going to come in second place. I'm not going to place. I don't care. I'm in the race. I'm in the race, and I'm going to get better. I'm going to get better, and I don't even aspire to be in first place. I'm good with second. I'm good with third. I want there to be always somebody on top. Somebody's pushing me. Be so- better. You're thinking, as long as you're in the game, you haven't really lost yet because there's still a chance to keep moving forward. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That, absolutely. But there are times where I've, where I, you know, on paper I've lost, but you think I lost. I really didn't because I learned so much. I can take all that stuff I've learned and apply it to the next lesson that I'm giving somebody else, even if that somebody else is myself. And I'm essentially taking that next lesson and the next thing that I'm doing and I'm, building on what I learned from the past failure. So you're really not losing because you said on paper you lost, but like internalizing this knowledge for the next goal, you're actually, you're winning. Even when you're losing, you're so good. You're winning. Exactly. And, and as, as an entrepreneur, like when you have multiple streams of income and you have multiple businesses, you don't got to be firing on all cylinders at once. I mean, man, even today, I'm not. I'm not firing on all cylinders. I'm not firing on eight cylinders. I might be firing on four or five, while I'm picking up the other, you know, two, three. But like, if you're an entrepreneur, you should have multiple income streams. If you're dependent only on one income stream, God forbid, what happens? What happens if you're if you're practicing as a dentist and your hands get broken or chopped off? It can happen. What are you gonna do? What are you going to do if you lose one eye? There should be multiple income streams. And whether that's you're investing in real estate, if you have a side hustle, if you've made other investments in technology, there's a ton of things to invest in. You're in dentistry. Think of something. You, you've been practicing it on patients. Think about that, you know, that little thing that you could use, that instrument or that device or that software. It's possible. Invest it in yourself. But there should be multiple income streams. And I'm going to tell you multiple income streams and save my butt plenty of times. <laughs> plenty of times. But that's the reason also why I'm not afraid to, to, to lose. I can afford it. How many income streams do you have now? Five. Five. Income okay. Streams. Yeah. As you mentioned, you've had some pretty big failures. What's one of the big failures you've really learned from? <laughs> I would say my probably my biggest failure in business um, would definitely be Dental Hub Dental Hub 360 and Carmi. Okay, tell me about that. Uh, the the long story short, it was a business that I tried my hardest at for ten years. I got family uh, and friends uh, that were investors, the only investors I've ever taken for any business. And I did everything to blow it up. I even got business partners and, and uh, in that business, um, three of them that were are huge in the social media world. 
and um, we got beat down on social media from cyber bullies, uh, essentially, that didn't want Dental Hub 360 to exist. And this is something that I worked on since 2010, 2000, yeah, 2010, 2011. And um, I worked on it so hard and I spent so much, hundreds of thousands of dollars into it and it just didn't work. But it didn't help that I had some really, you know, mean people in dentistry to to put the anchors on that bad boy and put it to a stop. But at the end of the day, I learned from it. It brought me and, you know, my business partners at the time very close and we're still close to this day. And, um, you know, it was, it taught me a lot, uh, taught me a lot. I learned so many lessons from that, but that was definitely the biggest one. And I laughed because I can, um, in hindsight, like, cause I tried so hard. I've never, I had to call up. It was really hard. I had to call up my friends and family and tell them that this thing that I had work on, that they invested their hard-earned dollars on, and I personally invested my hard-earned dollars and all and time for years, that I failed. And it was it was a hard thing to do. But I was able to call them up and say that and honestly say, like, I gave it my all. And to work on something for that long and it still not take off, it's the biggest failure. What... Wow. What were you feeling? What was when it was all said and done? You lost a hundred thousand dollars. Your Way friends more, more like half a million. <laughs> so you lost five hundred thousand dollars. Maybe even worse, your friends lost a bunch of money and it was done. Was it initial, was it depression, or what did you feel right after? It was a long time of feeling beat up pre being done. It was a long time this feeling really beat up like Oh, I almost had it sold. Then a new president of an organization came in and just like made me start over, super deflating. Um, but honestly, like whenever I worked up the nerve to call my family and my friends, the ones that invested in me in 2010 and um, 9, 10, and 11, wherever I called them and told them and just told them what it was, it, it felt really good actually. Like I felt horrible calling, but every single one of them that have been following me and close with me all along were just like, okay, like I understand. That felt good. You know? I think you had a good foundation. You had such good moral character. I can already tell. I just know when you called these people, they knew in their hearts you gave it your all. So although maybe they're upset they lost the money, they would rather lose money investing in you than lose money in some scam somewhere else. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, anyways, that was the by far the the worst failure. <laughs> I lost close to two hundred thousand dollars earlier in my career, and I just remember the depression and shame after. I felt like a terrible provider. I felt stupid. I was like embarrassed. So I, I, I kind of know how you feel after losing that much money. Yeah. yeah. So I, I want to be respectful of your time. We're coming up on the forty forty five minute mark. What is one takeaway you'd want the audience to have from this almost hour interview? Well, man, um, I think the biggest takeaway is, is, you know, be around people that lift you up. This interview is a little bit, <laughs> little, uh, I would call it 
pulling out the worst of Elijah. So <laughs> that's my don't, fault. <laughs> don't, don't don't let the uh, I don't call them skeletons in the closet, but be around people that lift you up, not bring you down. You know, be be around people that are bringing out the best in you, and be around people that are are cheering you along during your journey. And get rid of the people that are essentially being beating you down. That are there are dead weights, and whether that's a family member or it's a coworker or a, whoever it may be, like surround yourself around positive people. You have the ability to choose who you're around, choose wisely. That's so true. I mean, you can have some negative people in your life that can really bring you down. Yeah. So, Elijah, tell people where they can find you, how they can come to your events, and how they can learn more about you. Yeah, absolutely. So ElijahDesmond.com is my website. That website has links out to every other you know entity that I own for the most part. And then I'm very accessible on all social media, most social media channels, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram. Um, I'm, I'm available through all those platforms. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm the one that's responding to you, not one of my team. <laughs> Well, good. Well, I really appreciate your time today, and I hope to talk to you soon. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Elijah.